My older brother recently wanted to teach a Sunday school class on apologetics, and he asked me if he could borrow some books. And so I gave him some Chesterton, and I gave him some Lewis, and I gave him some John Stott, and I gave him some Peter Kreitz books. And after a few weeks, he gave me back the Lewis, and he gave me back the Chesterton, and he gave me back John Stott, and he kept the books by Peter Kreitz, and I've never gotten them back. Uh, maybe you need to write a book on morality. I probably should be in there somewhere. Uh, but those were the books that he used for the class, and they were a great success. So, Dr. Crate, it's a privilege to have you. Thank you. This talk is an attempt to answer the question, chance or the dance, what dance? <laughs> of all the passages in the more than 50 books of my favorite author, C.S. Lewis, the great dance at the end of Paralandra is the one I have the most vivid and joy-filled memory of from my first reading, and the one I think I will most likely remember as I lie dying. When I first read it, I remember thinking, this is too good to be true. This is good beyond hope, to use the phrase Lewis used to describe Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I had never read anything like it before, and I have not read anything like it since, except perhaps Lewis's own equally mystical description of the descent of the five planetary gods in that hideous strength. I don't know at the time, I didn't know at the time why it had such power over me, but I think I know now. It was food for an empty stomach. Nature abhors the vacuum, spiritually as well as physically. The vacuum is the typically modern worldview, which we could call the joyless cosmology. Lewis's is the joyful cosmology. We have all breathed that modern joyless air, even those of us who disbelieve it or even despise it. Our lungs are full of reductionism, which is dead air. Then suddenly, a gust of wet, salty air blows in from the sea, and our spirits spring up like children, full of a mysterious joy. A smell from another country, a gleam of celestial beauty falling on our jungle of filth and imbecility, to use another formula from Paralandra itself. An angel, a heavenly messenger, a star. I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, if the stars should appear only one night in a thousand years, how mankind would wonder and be grateful for that vision of heaven that had been shown. Well, something like The Great Dance appears only once in a thousand books. That's why we appreciate it, as a Bedouin appreciates an oasis. Put in a more scholarly way, we find here in poetic form a radical alternative to the dehumanizing worldview that has starved and crushed our souls for centuries, especially this darkest of centuries. One major cause of this darkness is ferreted out in the abolition of man as reductionism. Nothing but ism. Only ism. Thought is only cerebral biochemistry. Love is only lust. Man is only a trousered ape. Religion is only myth. Consciousness is only an epiphenomenon of matter. Life is only the candle's brief and pointless sputter between two infinite expanses of darkness. The term Lewis uses for this view is naturalism. The view that nature alone exists. But nature is a tricky word. On page 81 of The Abolition of Man, he defines nature as follows. He says, nature is a word of varying meanings. Nature seems to be, first, the spatial and temporal, as distinct from what is less fully so, or is not so at all. 
that is matter in the modern sense, as distinct from the Greek Aristotelian sense. Second, nature seems to be the world of quantity as against the world of quality, that is, matter in the Aristotelian sense, as distinct from forms or essences or Platonic ideas. Third, nature is objects as over against consciousness, for consciousness is supernatural in relation to the universe of matter, since consciousness knows the universe and the knowledge of a thing is not one of that thing's parts, as Lewis says so simply and elegantly in Miracles chapter 3. Therefore, insofar as we know the universe, we must transcend the universe. Fourth, nature is that which is bound as against the wholly or partly autonomous, for freedom follows consciousness as will follows intellect. The degree of consciousness is also the degree of freedom. Fifth, nature means that which knows no values as against that which both has and perceives value. For values transcend facts. The ought cannot be derived simply from the is, as Lewis showed in part two of The Abolition of Man and as G.E. Moore proved quite logically in Principia Ethica. Value, too, thus is supernatural. Finally, sixth, nature means efficient causes or in some modern systems no causality at all as against final causes. Final causes means purposes or ends. Thus, nature is also the realm of chronos time, which measures matter but not mind or purpose, as distinct from kairos time, which is time for something, time that measures mind and purpose and final cause. Now, all of these six points are connected. For instance, chronos time is quantitative. It is seconds or light years. Kairos time is qualitative. It is time for this rather than for that. End has a double meaning, like time. The quantitative end point in a process and the meaning or purpose of the process. In the first sense, the end of life is death. In the second sense, the end of life is love. Lewis then goes on to say, quote, when we understand a thing analytically and then dominate it and use it for our own convenience, we reduce it to the level of nature in the sense that we suspend our judgments of value about it, ignore its final cause, and treat it in terms of quantity. This repression of elements in what would otherwise be our total reaction to it is sometimes very noticeable and even painful. Something has to be overcome before we can cut up a dead man or a live animal in a dissecting room. These objects resist the reductionistic movement of the mind whereby we thrust them into the world of mere nature. Unquote. Notice that our natural, normal, instinctive, pre-scientific consciousness of and reaction to things is a fuller, more adequate reaction to the whole thing. It is more objective, it is more revelatory of the object's own total being than our later, more precise and analytical philosophical or scientific abstractions. Thus, as Heidegger startlingly says, poetry may be more objective than science. Lewis concludes with a vision of two sciences, reductionistic versus non-reductionistic. Quote, it is not the greatest of modern scientists who feel most sure that the object, stripped of its qualitative properties and reduced to mere quantity, is wholly real. The great minds know well that the object so treated is an artificial abstraction that something of its reality has been lost. 
He goes on, nothing I can say will prevent some people from describing this lecture as an attack on science. I deny the charge, of course, but I can go further than that. I even suggest that from science herself, the cure might come. Is it possible to imagine a new natural philosophy, that is, cosmology, continually conscious that the so-called natural object produced by analysis and abstraction is not reality, but only a view, and always correcting the abstraction? Lewis wrote that in 1947. He could not have foreseen the remarkable developments in physics since then that have led some to say that matter behaves more like mind than like anything else we know or the breakdown of the classical mechanistic physics that was still a formidable and slayable dragon in his day. Nor could he have foreseen that Kuhn's thesis about paradigms and paradigm shifts and horizons would come to dominate the new philosophy of science, a thesis in some ways similar to his own point about views quoted here and put more fully in the discarded image. By the way, I think Kuhn and Lewis are not saying quite the same thing. Lewis is more of a Platonist or an Aristotelian, whereas Kuhn is more of a Kantian. The Copernican revolution in philosophy stands between these two. Yet both are freed from the reductionism which we have learned from the theologians to call demythologizing. Perelandra is a re-mythologizing. The cosmology of all three books in the Space Trilogy is Lewis's poetic and fictional but serious attempt to contribute to this new natural philosophy or anti-reductionistic cosmology that he called for in the abolition of man. We need poets and novelists as well as scientists and philosophers of science to help build the new joyful cosmology. And I know of no one, except perhaps Tolkien, who has contributed more to the building of this cathedral than Lewis, especially in his fiction more especially in the Space Trilogy, and still most especially in Perelandra, and most especially of all in The Cosmic Dance, to which we now turn, having seen its historical and cosmological importance. Perelandra is a novel of jihad, spiritual warfare. So is that hideous strength. Both books resemble the apocalypse. There is a ubiquitous dualism, for every good an evil, for every evil a good for evil is good bent. The spiritual conflict in the Green Lady's soul, fed by the verbal and later physical conflict between Ransom and Weston, is parallel to the philosophical conflict between two worldviews, Weston's nihilistic reductionism and Ransom's Christianity. Weston's demythologized cosmology and Ransom's, that is Lewis's, remythologized cosmology, which Ransom learns, in fact sees, from the Eldilla in The Great Dance. We therefore need to look carefully at three passages. First, the identification of the philosophical enemy to be slain by the joyful cosmology, which Lewis calls the empirical bogey. Second, the Eldilla who teach it and who are a central part of it, Mars and Venus, the cosmic masculine and feminine. And finally, third, the cosmic dance itself. First, the empirical bogey. When Ransom first traveled through outer space in Out of the Silent Planet, he was amazed and delighted to see for himself, to see concretely with his eyes, not just abstractly with his mind, that the cosmology of emptiness and nihilism was false. The passage reads, Ransom, as time wore on, became aware of another and more spiritual cause for his progressive lightning and exaltation of heart as he flew through the heavens. A nightmare long engendered in the modern mind by the mythology that follows in the wake of science was falling off him. He had read of space, 
At the back of his thinking for years had lurked the dismal fancy of the black, cold vacuity, the utter deadness which was supposed to separate the worlds. He had not known how much it affected him till now, now that the very name space seemed a blasphemous libel for this Empyrean ocean of radiance in which they swam. He could not call it dead. He felt life pouring into him from it every moment. How indeed should it be otherwise, since out of this ocean the worlds and all their life had come? He had thought it barren. He saw now that it was the womb of worlds, whose blazing and innumerable offspring looked down nightly even upon the earth with so many eyes. And here with how many more? No, space was the wrong name. Older thinkers had been wiser when they named it simply the heavens. This is recalled in Paralandra when it is threatened by the worldview of Weston, that is the modern West, from which we need to be saved or ransomed. Quote, in vain did Ransom try to remember that he had been in space and found it heaven, tingling with a fullness of life for which infinity itself was not one cubic inch too large. All that now seemed like a dream. That opposite mode of thought, which he had often mocked and called in mockery the empirical bogey, came surging into his mind. The great myth of our century, with its gases and galaxies, its light years and evolutions, its nightmare perspectives of simple arithmetic, in which everything that can possibly hold significance for the mind becomes the mere pro byproduct of essential disorder. Unquote. The practical consequences of this theoretical picture, the life view that follows from this worldview, is literally deadly to the soul. Thus it needs a ransom, a savior. For this view of life has its origin and end in hell. This is clear when Weston says, that's why it's so important to live as long as you can. All the good things are now. A thin little rind of what we call life put on for show. And then the real universe forever and ever. To thicken the rind by one centimeter. To live one week, one day, one half hour longer. That's the only thing that matters. That's all there is to us. That's exactly the philosophy of the cynical squire Jeans in Ingmar Bergman's great movie, The Seventh Seal. His last words before he dies are, Feel the immense triumph of this last minute when you can still roll your eyes and move your toes. Ransom replies to Weston with Lewis's favorite argument. That could hardly be the whole story. If the whole universe were like that, then we, being parts of it, would feel at home in such a universe. The very fact that it strikes us as monstrous... Ah, yes, interrupted Weston, that would all be very well if it weren't that reasoning itself is only valid as long as you stay in the rind. It has nothing to do with the real universe. Reality is neither rational, nor consistent, nor anything else. In a sense, you might say, it isn't there. Sounds like a deconstructionist. Real and unreal, true and false, they're only on the surface. They give way the moment you press them. But, said Ransom, if all this were true, what would be the point of saying it? Or of anything else, replied Weston, the only point in anything is that there isn't any point. <laughs> Sound familiar? A frighteningly accurate prophecy of the philosophy regnant today among sophisticated intellectuals. I already spoke the, uh, the word deconstructionism, and I have to spit it out in disgust as a good Muslim spits out the word alcohol. <laughs> 
Sartre's Rocantin in Nausea and Camus' Merceau in The Stranger live this philosophy. It is the death of the soul. It is hell. Hell, by the way, is not where souls go to live forever. That's heaven. Hell is where souls go to die forever. We need to be ransomed from sin, but we also need to be ransomed from this philosophy. Hell's cosmology. The logical consequence of reductionism. Bertrand Russell saw those logical consequences and put them brilliantly in that famous passage from A Free Man's Worship. Such is the world which science, capital S, presents for our belief. Amid such a world, if anywhere, our ideals henceforward must find a home. That man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Now this is a philosophy, but it is primarily a spell. A spell of black magic laid on the human soul. Philosophical arguments are needed to refute the philosophy, but philosophical arguments alone will not lift the spell. Only a counterspell will lift a spell of black magic. Only good magic defeats bad magic. So we need a spell weaver, a magician. When Tolkien's son had to fill out a draft induction form, he filled in the blank for father's occupation with the word wizard. The same could have been said for Lewis, especially in Paralandra. Two of the greatest questions we need true answers to are what are we and what is the universe? Myths gave us answers to these two questions for most of our history on this planet until they dried up and left the desert of demythologized reductionism. Two of the most widespread myths that answered these two questions were the myth of Mars and Venus, or Yang and Yin, or cosmic masculine and feminine, which told us who we are, and the myth of the cosmic dance, which showed us what the universe is. Lewis rehabilitates or resurrects these precious myths for us in a Christianized but not demythologized form. For he learned from Tolkien that the gospel did not abrogate myths, but hallowed them. In fact, the gospel, says Lewis, is myth become fact. So let's look at the myth of cosmic masculine and feminine. This is a notion that is present in nearly every culture throughout time and space except our own. That fact must contribute to the rampant sexual confusion and decadence that also radically differentiates our culture so spectacularly for how can sex be sacred unless it is cosmic. In late Greek philosophy, angels and platonic forms or essences were sometimes confused or identified since both were eternal, perfect, and immaterial. It is therefore appropriate that the essential meaning or archetypal idea of the masculine and feminine be revealed in Paralandra by angels or elders. 
There are two things Lewis describes better than anyone else who has ever written, in my opinion. Sehnsucht and angels. That's my justification for the following rather lengthy quotation interspersed with comment and interpretation like a Christmas tree festooned with decorations. Another justification is the intrinsic and contemporary importance of the question of sex and gender. The Eldils of Paralandra make three attempts to appear to the human consciousness of Ransom. The first two, though unsuccessful, are almost as fascinating as the third, which remains. First, a tornado of sheer monstrosities seemed to be pouring over Ransom, darting pillars filled with eyes, lighting pulsations of flame, talons and beaks and billowy masses of what suggested snow volleyed through cubes and heptagons into an infinite black void. Stop it, stop it, he yelled, and the scene cleared. He gave the Eldilla to understand that this kind of appearance was not suited to human sensations. Look then at this, said the voices again, and he looked with some reluctance, and far off, between the peaks on the other side of the little valley, there came rolling wheels. Sound familiar? Ezekiel. There was nothing but that, concentric wheels moving with a rather sickening slowness, one inside the other. There was nothing terrible about them if you could get used to their appalling size, but there also seemed nothing significant. He bade them to try yet a third time. And suddenly, two human figures stood before him. They were perhaps 30 feet high. They were burning white, like white-hot iron. The outline of their bodies, when he looked at it steadily against the red landscape, seemed to be faintly, swiftly undulating, as though the permanence of their shape, like that of waterfalls or flames, coexisted with a rushing movement of the matter it contained. Whenever he looked straight at them, they appeared to be rushing toward him with enormous speed, this may have been due in part to the fact that their long and sparkling hair stood out straight behind them as if in a great wind. They were not standing quite vertically in relation to the floor of the valley, but to Ransom it appeared, as it had appeared to me on earth when I saw one, that the Eldils were vertical. It was the valley. It was the whole world of Paralandra, which was a slant. This, by the way, is good relativity theory. The whole universe is relative to the observer. Matter to mind. Nature to that which observes and thus transcends nature. Planets are relative to angels, not vice versa. Lewis goes on. He remembered the words of Oyarsa long ago in Mars. I am not here in the same way as you are here. That's a good angelology too, Aquinas would say. Lewis goes on. He told me he could in a sense remember the colors, that is, he would know them if he ever saw them again, but that he cannot by any effort call up a visual image of them, nor give them any name. The very few people with whom he and I can discuss these matters at all, us, give the same explanation. We think that when creatures of the hypersomatic kind choose to appear to us, they are not in fact affecting our retina at all, but directly manipulating the relevant parts of our brain. If so, it is quite possible that they can produce there the sensations we would have if our eyes were capable of receiving those colors in the spectrum which are actually beyond their range. The plumage, or halo, of the one Eldil was extremely different from that of the other. The Oyarsa of Mars shone with coal and mourning colors, a little metallic, pure, hard, and bracing. The Oyarsa of Venus glowed with a warm splendor, full of the suggestion of teeming vegetable life. 
See, hard versus soft, tough versus gentle. We need both. The faces surprised him very much. Nothing less like the angel of popular religious art could well be imagined. The rich variety, the hint of undeveloped possibilities which make the interest of human faces were entirely absent. You see, they're platonic archetypes. They're changeless. One single changeless expression, so clear that it hurt and dazzled him, was stamped on each and there was nothing else there at all. In that sense, their faces were as primitive, as unnatural, if you like, as those of archaic statues from Aegina. Were those statues based on real angels that were seen? We wonder. Uh, what this one thing was, he could not be certain. He concluded in the end that it was charity. That is the essential nature or core of love. But it was terrifyingly different from the expression of human charity, which we always see either blossoming out of or hastening to descend into natural affection. Here there was no affection at all, no least lingering memory of it, even at 10 million years distance, no germ from which it could spring in any future, however remote. Pure, spiritual, intellectual love shot from their faces like barbed lightning. It was so unlike the love we experienced that its expression could easily be mistaken for ferocity. Now, the reader who finds this passage incomprehensible, I think, simply does not understand the essence of love as distinct from its affectionate accidents. Perhaps the biblical wrath of God is explainable as this very thing, pure charity experienced by those whom it tortures rather than fulfills. Lewis goes on, both of the bodies were naked and both were free from any sexual characteristics, either primary or secondary. That one would have expected. But whence came this curious difference between them? He found that he could point to no single feature wherein the difference resided, yet it was impossible to ignore. One could try, Ransom tried a hundred times, to put it into words. He has said that Malacandra, Mars, was like rhythm, and Paralandra, like melody. That's another universal and cross-cultural analogy, by the way. I am the sun, you are the moon. I am the word, you are the tune. <laughs> It runs through popular culture as well as great culture. He thinks that the first held in his hand something like a spear, but the hands of the other were open with the palms toward him. Well, the sexual symbolism there is obvious, but it's not allegory. The spear is not an allegory for the penis, nor the open palms for the womb. Rather, both things are expressions of the same spiritual platonic archetype. What Ransom saw at that moment... Lewis goes on to write, was the real meaning of gender. Everyone must sometimes have wondered why in nearly all tongues certain inanimate objects are masculine and others feminine. What is masculine about a mountain or feminine about certain trees? Ransom has cured me of believing that this is a purely morphological phenomenon depending on the form of the word. Still less is gender an imaginative extension of sex. Our ancestors did not make mountains masculine because they projected male characteristics into them. The real process is the reverse. Gender is a reality and a more fundamental reality than sex, that is human sex. Sex is in fact merely the adaption to organic life of a fundamental polarity which divides all created beings. Female sex is simply one of the things that have feminine gender. There are many others and masculine and feminine meet us on planes of reality where male and female would be simply meaningless. Now, this passage may be a little confusing because Lewis used the words gender and sex in the old sense 
not the new attenuated sense in which gender means not cosmic masculine and feminine, but simply biological maleness or femaleness, and sex means not biological maleness and femaleness, but simply copulation, or even any kind of sex organ arousal. The remythologization here consists in restoring the fullness of reality to gender polarity, turning upside down the modern projection theory, because it is in fact upside down. It is similar to what Jesus does with the word food, and what St. Paul does with the word father, when Jesus says that doing God's will is real food, or food indeed, not just a pale symbol for food. Food is a pale symbol for it. And when Paul says that all fatherhood and family on earth is named after the Father in heaven, not vice versa. Gender goes all the way down to positive and negative electrical charges, and all the way up into the angels, and perhaps even into the Trinity. There is a parallel passage in That Hideous Strength where Jane discovers the principle Lewis states here and is converted, accepting God as her spiritual husband. The principle is just the reverse of reductionism. Cosmic masculine and feminine are not a pale copy of biological male and female, but exactly the reverse. Platonic forms are not pale copies by human minds of material things. Material things are pale copies of objective Platonic ideas, eternal essences. As Lewis puts it, masculine is not attenuated male, nor feminine attenuated female. On the contrary, the male and female of organic creatures are rather faint and blurred reflections of masculine and feminine. Their reproductive functions, their difference in strength and size, partly exhibit, but partly also confuse and misrepresent the real polarity. All this Ransom saw, as it were, with his own eyes. The two white creatures were sexless, but he of Malacandra was masculine, not male. She of Paralandra was feminine, not female. Malacandra seemed to him to have the look of one standing armed at the ramparts of his own remote archaic world in ceaseless vigilance, his eyes ever roaming the earthward horizon whence his danger came long ago. A sailor's look, Ransom once said to me. You know, eyes that are impregnated with distance. But the eyes of Paralandra opened as it were inward, as if they were the curtained gateway to a world of waves and murmurings and wandering airs, of life that rocked in winds and splashed on mossy stones and descended as the dew and arose sunward in thin-spun delicacy of mist. On Mars, the very forests are of stone. In Venus, the lands swim. With deep wonder, he thought to himself, my eyes have seen Mars and Venus. I have seen Ares and Aphrodite. Now, pretty clearly, this vision gives our ordinary empirical maleness and femaleness a far more momentous meaning as a colony of a heavenly country. Such supernatural sex does not substitute for or lessen the significance or value of natural sex, but vastly expands it. But the next question is the epistemological one. How do we on earth know these trans-earthly archetypes? Lewis's answer. He asked them how they were known to the old poets of Tellus, that is Earth. They told him, there is an environment of minds as well as of space. The universe is one, a spider's web wherein each mind lives along every line. A vast whispering gallery where no secret can be rigorously kept. In the very matter of our world, the traces of the celestial commonwealth are not quite lost. 
Memory passes through the womb and hovers in the air. The muse is a real thing. A faint breath, as Virgil says, reaches even the late generations. Our mythology is based on a solider reality than we dream, but it is also at an almost infinite distance from that base. And when they told him this, Ransom at last understood why mythology was what it was, gleams of celestial strength and beauty falling on a jungle of filth and imbecility. I think Lewis is perfectly serious here. His explanation of myth is itself a myth. Myth, like science, explains data, explains experience. The myth of a cosmic whispering gallery, the unconscious telepathy with angels at a great distance, explains this strange twofold feature of Earth's mythology, beauty and imbecility, wisdom and folly, their wisdom mixed with our folly. There have been other deep thinkers who have also taken our Earth's mythologies very seriously. For instance, Houston Smith in Forgotten Truth, Mircea Eliade, Fritjof Schuon. But no one with Lewis's breadth, no one also who was at the same time a Christian apologist and a romantic poet and a fantasy and science fiction novelist and a philosopher. Lewis has not turned from all these things to mythology, but he has integrated mythology into them or them into it. His mark always seems to be more, not less. His philosophy, always Hamlet's philosophy, that there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophies. The reductionist believes there are far fewer things in heaven and earth, that is, in objective reality, than in our philosophies, that is, in our minds. Most of our ideas are myths in the pejorative sense. The rationalist and the dogmatist believes that there are exactly the same number of things in heaven and earth, that is, objective reality, as in his particular philosophy. But the poet knows that there are more, always more. Therefore, the poet wonders, while the reductionist sneers and the dogmatist prattles. Now we come to the cosmic dance, which is the culmination of the plot in Paralandra, and in fact, of the history of the universe. In visual and symbolic form, it is no less than the meaning of creation in a kind of cosmic choreography. The dance is a traditional image for a traditional idea, but Lewis uses it for a modern purpose to combat the joyless cosmology with the joyful, to exorcise the demon of the empirical bogey, the empty and meaningless universe conjured up by the black magic of reductionism. Here, in poetic and mythic form, is the worldview of the new non-reductionistic science that Lewis himself called for in the abolition of man. Note, first of all, that it is a dance. Play, says Lewis in Letters to Malcolm, is more ultimate, more heavenly than work, for it is its own end. It is not an instrumental means to any further end. The serious business of heaven is joy. Thus it is called the great game. The cosmic setting of this play or game or dance is the remythologized universe, freed from the empirical bogey. The archetypal characters of the play are Mars and Venus, cosmic masculine and feminine. The plot is the great dance. We are now ready to review the plot and in it the theme. What is the point? What is the center of it all? We are privileged to see or hear this from an angel's eye viewpoint. It begins. The speeches followed one another, if indeed they did not all take place at the same time, like the parts of a music into which all five of them had entered as instruments. 
Music, of course, is more fundamental than speech. The language of heaven is music. Music is also less linear than speech. Music interpenetrates. The great dance does not wait to be perfect until the peoples of the low worlds, that is the solar system, are gathered into it. We speak not of when it will begin. It has begun from before always. You see, this is the angelic point of view that transcends material chronological time. There was no time when we did not rejoice before his face as now. The dance which we dance is at the center, and for the dance all things were made. Blessed be he. The philosophical question here is, what is at the center? What is the central meaning of all things in the cosmos? Is there anything at the center, or is everything relative? The first answer is that the whole dance, the dance as a whole, is at the center. The whole universe is at the center of the whole universe. For the universe, as a reflection of its creator, is an infinite sphere whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. For the dance, all things were made. As for the play, all things in the play are made. The setting, the costumes, the stage, the syllables. The singer is for the song, not the song for the singer. He goes on. Another said, never did he make two things the same. Never did he utter one word twice. After earths, not better earths, but beasts. After beasts, not better beasts, but spirits. After a falling, not a recovery, but a new creation. Out of the new creation, not a third, but the mode of change itself is changed forever. Blessed be he. In other words, creation, physical evolution, biological evolution, redemption, and the afterlife are five different modes of change, like five different temporal dimensions. Another said, it is loaded with justice as a tree bows down with fruit. All is righteousness and there is no equality. He's deliberately contrasting justice with equality here. Natural or cosmic justice is inequality. Human or political justice is equality. How provincial to project our fallen little justice onto the universe as if the stars needed to wear the same clothes that protect us against the consequences of our fall. He says, not as when stones lie side by side, but as when stones support and are supported in an arch. Such is his order. You see, it's like the human body. It's not like an army marching. Rule and obedience, two modernly unpopular words, begetting and bearing, increasingly also unpopular, heat glancing down, life growing up, blessed be he. I think all the great ancient societies, the Greek, the Chinese, the Hindu, knew that justice was like music, not unison, but harmony. Uniforms and uniformity and equality suggest a totalitarian mindset rather than a natural one, one appropriate to our century. The social consequences of cosmological models uh, are immense. One said, they who add years to years in lumpish aggregation, or miles to miles and galaxies to galaxies, shall not come near his greatness. In other words, quantity, the language of computers, uh, is not the language of heaven, or of nature. Not thus is he great. He dwells, all of him dwells, within the seed of the smallest flower, and he is not cramped. 
Deep heaven is inside him who is inside the seed and does not distend him. Blessed be he. Our modern model is simply inside out and upside down when we prioritize quantity over quality, matter over spirit. The edge of each nature borders on that whereof it contains no shadow or similitude. Of many points, one line. Of many lines, one shape. Of many shapes, one solid body. Of many senses and thoughts, one person. Of three persons, himself. Here, Lewis takes the traditional medieval idea of the great chain of being and puts it into the more abstract and philosophically sophisticated form of dimensions. His essay on dimensions, called Transformation, in the anthology The Weight of Glory and Other Addresses, is, I think, the most philosophically original and suggestive thing Lewis ever wrote. The peoples of the ancient worlds who never sinned, for whom he never came down, are the peoples for, whom, for whose sake the low worlds were made. For though the healing of what was wounded and the straightening of what was bent is a new dimension of glory, yet the straight was not made simply that it might be bent, nor the whole that it might be wounded. The ancient unfallen peoples are at the center. Blessed be he. Better is innocence than repentance. Better would we have been if our ancestors had not fallen. Better are we even now when we avoid sin than when we sin and then repent. Better are those extraterrestrial races, if they exist, which have not sinned, and God preserve them from our spaceships. Lewis says, by the way, that one useful way of expressing the doctrine of the fall and of free will and responsibility is that if there are other races of intelligent beings on other planets, it is not necessary to suppose that they too have sinned. A useful disputed question for the theologians. I wonder why none of them have picked it up. In the fallen world, he goes on to say, he prepared for himself a body and was united with the dust and made the dust glorious forever. This is the end and final cause of all creating. And the sin whereby it came is called fortunate. And the world where this was enacted is the center of all worlds. Blessed be he. So earth is the dramatic center of the universe, though not the physical center. For here is the stage where the creator came down to play the central part in his own play. God came into the universe as a man, not, as far as we know, as a Martian. All other unfallen races that know God must long to make pilgrimages to our ironically privileged planet. Perhaps they do, invisibly. A corking good story could be made out of that idea. He goes on, though men or angels rule them, the worlds are for themselves. The waters you have not floated on, the fruit you have not plucked, the caves into which you have not descended, and the fire through which your bodies cannot pass, do not await your coming to put on perfection, though they will obey you when you come. Times without number, I have circled our bowl, the sun, while you were not alive, and those times were not desert. Their own voice was in them not merely a dreaming of the day when you should awake. Be comforted, small immortals. You are not the voice that all things utter, nor is there eternal silence in the places where you cannot come. No feet have walked, nor ever shall, on the ice of Glund. No eye looked up from beneath on the ring of Lurga, and the iron plain in Nuruval is chaste and empty, yet it is not for nothing that the gods walk ceaselessly around the fields of Arbol. Blessed be he. 
Now, this is hard to take for some people. Anthropocentrism and subjectivism and pride have so deeply infected even us Christians that we are shocked by this absence of humanism. Though we are at the center, we are not at the center. Man is not God. That simple formula should suffice to refute humanism. And once we are done with humanism, what a breeze of relief. We can let beings be. We don't have to think the ring of Lurga, Saturn, is a contrived lesson for us from God or a mere opportunity for us to make something out of it, but it can be wonderfully wild and free to be itself. We are little children in the Father's enormous and mysterious house. We are not the master. We can play. The dust itself, which is scattered so rare in heaven, whereof all worlds and the bodies that are not worlds are made, is at the center. Only the least part of this dust has served or ever shall a beast or a man. But it is what it is, and it utters the heart of the Holy One with its own voice. The dust is the farthest from him of all things, for it has no life, nor sense, nor reason. But it is the nearest to him of all things, for without intervening soul, as sparks fly out of fire, he utters in each grain of it the unmixed image of his energy. Each grain, if it spoke, would say, I am at the center, and for me all things were made. Let no mouth open to gainsay it. Blessed be he. So even matter is at the center, because it is innocent and pure, because it hosts God's presence, and ultimately simply because it is. What, then, is the center? What is the absolute within the cosmos? What is the answer to the sickening feeling in the stomach that we get when we realize that Einstein is right and we are on sea, not on land? Where is the solid ground? Where is the navel of the cosmos so that we can stick into it the tent pole of our temple, as primitive peoples were wont to do? The answer is everything and nothing. Everything because of the divine immanence, nothing because of the divine transcendence. Or as Lewis puts it, where Mal El Dil is, there is the center. He is in every place. Therefore, every place is the center. Not some of him in one place and some in another, but in each place the whole Maleldil, even in the smallness beyond thought. There is no way out of the center, save into the bent will which casts itself into the nowhere. Blessed be he. So the nature of the true center, God, accounts for the fact that the center is everywhere. For God is not a finite creature with a finite essence. Therefore, he does not displace other creatures or other essences or contest place with them. His very transcendence allows him to be totally imminent everywhere. As the transcendence of light over any color, light is no particular color, allows light to light up and perfect all colors from within. Or as the transcendence of mind over matter, remember the knowledge of a thing is not one of a thing's parts, allows mind to know and be present to all matter, and thus God to all minds, as well as all matter. The dance concludes, each thing was made for him. He is at the center. Because we are with him, each of us is at the center. That's the only true humanism. It is not as in a city of the darkened world where they say that each must live for all. In his city, all things are made for each. When he died in the wounded world, he died not for men, 
but for each man. If each man had been the only man made, he would have done no less. A thrilling and humbling thought. Christ died not for mankind. He died for me. There are no abstractions with God. He has immeasurable use for each thing that is made, that his love and splendor may flow forth like a strong river, which has need of a great watercourse and fills alike the deep pools and the little crannies that are filled equally and remain unequal. And when it has filled them brimful, it flows over and makes new channels. We also have need beyond measure of all that he has made. Love me, my brothers, for I am infinitely necessary to you, and for your delight I was made. Blessed be he. Yet, he goes on to say, he has no need at all of anything that is made. An eldil is not more needful to him than a grain of the dust, and what all add to him is nothing. We also have no need of anything that is made. Love me, my brothers, for I am infinitely superfluous, and your love shall be, like his, born neither of your need nor of my deserving, but a plain bounty. Blessed be he. A beautiful description of the nature of agape, the nature of God, the paradox of infinite use and no need. I think if we realized and practiced this vision of love on earth, that would be the kingdom. That would be his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And now, by a transition which he did not notice, it seemed that what had begun as speech was turned into sight, or into something that can be remembered only as if it were seeing. He thought he saw the great dance. It seemed to be woven out of the intertwining undulation of many cords or bands of light, leaping over and under one another, and mutually embraced in arabesques and flower-like subtleties. Each figure, as he looked at it, became the master figure, or focus, of the whole spectacle, by means of which his eye disentangled all else and brought it into unity. Only to be itself entangled when he looked to what he had taken for mere marginal decorations and found that there also the same hegemony was claimed, and the claim made good, yet the former pattern not thereby dispossessed, but finding in its new subordination a significance greater than that which it had abdicated. He could see also, but the word seeing is plainly now inadequate, wherever the ribbons or serpents of light intersected, minute corpuscles of momentary brightness, and he knew somehow that these particles were the secular generalities of which history tells. Peoples, institutions, climates of opinion, civilizations, arts, sciences, and the like. Ephemeral coruscations that piped their short song and vanished. The ribbons, or cords themselves, in which millions of corpuscles lived and died, were things of some different kind. At first he could not say what, but he knew in the end that most of them were individual entities. That passage conjures up in my mind the great paragraph at the end of The Weight of Glory. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. But not all the chords were individuals. Some were universal truths or universal qualities. 
It did not surprise him then to find that these and the individual persons were both cords and both stood together as against the mere atoms of generality which lived and died in the clashing of their streams. But afterwards, when he came back to Earth, he wondered. I can hear Professor Kirk muttering here, it's all in Plato, all in Plato. Bless me, what do they teach them in the schools nowadays? <laughs> Of course, Platonic ideas like truth and goodness and beauty are immortal, and so are Sam and Kate and Susie, but not democracy or humanism or post-impressionism. And by now, the thing must have passed altogether out of the region of sight as we understand it, as dimension was added to dimension, and that part of him which could reason and remember was dropped farther and farther behind that part of him which saw, even then, at the zenith of complexity, complexity was eaten up and faded as a thin white cloud fades into the hard blue burning of the sky. And a simplicity beyond all comprehension, ancient and young as spring, illimitable, pellucid, drew him with cords of infinite desire into its own stillness. He went up into such a quietness, a privacy, and a freshness that at the very moment when he stood farthest from our ordinary mode of being, he had the sense of stripping off encumbrances and awakening from trance and coming to himself. With a gesture of relaxation, he looked about him. This last mystical paragraph strongly resembles the accounts of many authentic mystics, both Eastern and Western, for one would expect the human spirit not to change when we travel East. To be deprived of true theology is not to be deprived of one's own human nature. It also resembles Lewis's account of his conversion in Surprised by Joy, where he uses the same image of stripping off encumbrances or clothing or armor like a snakeskin. Finally, it resembles the end of A Grief Observed, where he records the simplicity and utter unemotionality of the intimacy with which he experienced the presence of his dead wife. And especially the final conclusion in the final paragraph, which speaks so wonderfully teasingly of that impression which I can't describe except by saying that it's like the sound of a chuckle in the darkness. The sense that some shattering and disarming simplicity is the real answer. Chesterton knew the same secret, for he learned it from the same source as Lewis. The source is Christ, and here is his secret. Chesterton writes, Joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. The tremendous figure which fills the Gospels towers in this respect, as in every other, above all the thinkers. The Stoics, ancient and modern, were proud of concealing their tears. He never concealed his tears. Yet he concealed something. Solemn supermen and imperial diplomats are proud of restraining their anger. He never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down the front steps of the temple and asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. Yet he restrained something. I say it with reverence, there was in that shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went up a mountain to pray. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon our earth, and I have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth. This is the wardrobe into Narnia. This is the door out of our agonized world of spiritual darkness where ignorant armies clash by night. This is the joy the New Testament speaks of in the strangest way anyone has ever spoken of joy. It is the joy of Christ that came in the most unlikely time and place in all of history, Calvary. 
It is the secret of him who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the joy that conquered hell on the cross. The joy that was the door Christ saw behind the cross, the cross-shaped door, whose other side is a crown, the death-shaped mask worn by the Lord of life. The only adequate answer to our century of genocide and the triumph of the principalities and powers of wickedness in heavenly places and the threat of a brave new world and the abolition of man is the secret that frees us into this gesture of relaxation that is the culmination of the great dance, the smile on the face of God. In conclusion, optimism or pessimism about our future, about the third millennium. Will we reach the joyful cosmology, or will we not? I have no crystal ball any more than you do, but we have clues. So my bottom line is optimism. Because apocalyptically decadent ages elicit saints. Suffering elicits courage, compassion, heroism, martyrdom. Evil elicits good in response. Bad times make good people, as mountainous pressures make diamonds, or as fire tempers steel. I think we should have, have great hopes for our society. For if she emerges from her present crisis, she will be stronger than ever before. In merely American terms, look at the wars we have fought and the war we are now fighting. Defeating British economic tyranny in the Revolutionary War, sorry friends, only gave us political independence. Defeating slavery in the Civil War gave us only personal freedom for all. Defeating fascist totalitarianism in World War II gave us only a free world. But defeating moral decadence and confusion and the joyless cosmology and reductionism would give us joy and moral strength and clarity and perhaps even holiness. For the more dangerous the enemy, the more precious the victory. Therefore, I think the 21st century will be one of two things. Either it will be the best since the 13th or the worst since the 21st B.C. before the call of Abraham and the founding of Judaism. It depends on which side wins the current war. Either we will build Gothic cathedrals again from a restored faith or we will build the Tower of Babel again from a restored apostasy. And Lewis, like all prophets, gives us the roadmap and the clear choice between the two roads of life or death, joy or misery, and the mosaic simplicity of the challenge to choose life. Please do. Please help save the world. Please be a saint. And please don't waste time clapping because we only have 10 minutes left for questions. Have you ever wished that you could attend a church service in which the great dance was used as a liturgy? I know that I shall in heaven. I can wait. You mentioned almost parenthetically that you saw music as the fundamental language of heaven. And I'd like you to comment more on that, especially in light of conventional impressions of creation out of word. What do you mean by that? Well, there is an old tradition which Lewis uses in uh, The Magician's Nephew that the original language in which God created the world was music. And I believe Lewis also quoted a line from George MacDonald in his MacDonald Anthology that heaven is the place where all that is not silence is music. 
Martin Heidegger says somewhere that we usually think that music is ornamented poetry, poetry is ornamented prose. He thinks it's the other way around. Music is the original language, and then it fell into poetry, and then that fell into prose. Because there's a, a basic superstition that we have that all great things emerge from ungreat things. Now, for creationists, we can't believe that. The first thing is the greatest thing. So a great thing can only begin great. And if prose is great, it must begin in something equally or greaterly great, which is poetry. And poetry must begin in something equally or greaterly great, which is music. Most people sense that there's a profundity in music that can't be expressed in words, even poetic words. Of course, words add something that music doesn't have, too. Just as quantity adds something that quality doesn't have. Uh, I see this podium in front of me, and for me to measure it with a ruler adds something that wasn't there before. Yet for me to say that the quantity is greater than the quality, I think is a fallacy. So I think words are to music something as quantity is to quality. Uh, I don't like to be a snob. I like to practice what Chesterton calls the democracy of the dead. And since so many of these primitive people seem to be onto something here with music as the ultimate language and with the muses as the obvious source of music, I'm willing to be led by them.